read today from verse 18, but we'll read a few verses further than we have read thus far in our Bible readings, in our studies. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We're going to end reading in verse 23. And again, we trust the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. And we'll again bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice today to sing of an empty tomb and to be able to see that in our hearts, to know that as revealed in Your Word and evidenced in history, and say, Yonder is my peace, the grave of all my woes. I know the Son of God has come. I know He died and rose. Help us this day, this first day of the week, as we come in the name of a risen Savior, and give us help as we consider Your Word. Lord, these most important verses in Your Word. Make use of them, we pray, in every heart. And we ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. In our last two messages, we have been looking at the phrases that Paul uses to open his discussion of the wrath of God. And again, this discussion, this revelation of wrath is the first major heading in this epistle, if you will remember our statement of Paul's quite simple outline, really. We see the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul begins to unfold that more fully and more deeply all the way up to the 20th verse of chapter 3. And then in verse 21 of that chapter... The following paragraph that many have described as the most important paragraph that's ever been written, Paul begins to show the righteousness of God revealed. And it shouldn't be any wonder that that second major heading that goes from chapter 3, verse 21, right through to the end of the book is significantly longer than this section dealing with wrath. Because in some ways, wrath is not so difficult to understand. We see man created in God's image. We see man placed under what we call that covenant of works. We see man immediately rebel and sin against his Creator. 
As we read at the communion table last week, it would have seemed quite a simple thing. God is shut up to the execution of the penalty of His broken law. But the sovereign God purposed otherwise. And so it doesn't surprise us to see that the closing section of Romans is much longer, much more full. Because that which isn't, as it were, so easy to understand and see is unfolded as this book teaches us of the second man. But as we come and we, I guess, launch a few phrases deeper into this opening section of the wrath of God, we come to see that the further we read into this description of the condition of fallen man, the more we understand why Paul's thesis statement, just that couple verses before, why that thesis statement uses the phrase that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Fallen man is spiritually dead. And it takes a work of resurrection power to grant him life again. In the opening statement about the revelation of wrath, Paul moves further and further into a description of sin and depravity in the closing verses of this chapter. I say a description of sin and depravity that staggers the mind. The catalog of sins that brings chapter 1 to a conclusion illustrates a sad cycle within history. A cycle from unlawful pursuits to unnatural perversions. Sadly, we see clear evidence that we have entered a season of history ourselves where the lowest points of that cycle have in the popular mind emerged from the hidden corners of a previously blessed society to the openly celebrated spotlight of a culture from which God has removed His hand of restraint. I vividly remember a lecture in systematic theology where a particular reference was given to the doctrines that are found in this first chapter of Romans. Dr. Cairns paused several times in systematic theology where I think we crossed over from lecture to sermon. That was good enough. But he paused and said, I want you men to understand as we read and look and study at these things that this is not a description of people who deserve the wrath of God. It is a description of people who are already under the wrath of God. Sober truth, indeed, that is. So I want us today to move forward into this chapter a little bit more and begin discussing what we will call the results of God's wrath. This has been almost accidental over the last few weeks. For our last three studies, we have entitled our studies The Revelation of Wrath, The Reasons for Wrath, and now, as I said, The Results of Wrath. These headings are not watertight, so we're breaking a couple of the rules of homiletics, I suppose. Reasons for wrath and the results of wrath will be mingled together in our thoughts today and really in what we see in the following studies as we come to the later portion of the chapter. 
But I want today to collect our thoughts very simply under two headings. And these really are giant headings. But we're going to consider first today a revelation which cannot be silenced. A revelation which cannot be silenced. And then secondly, Lord willing, a rejection which cannot be excused. So think with me first of that revelation which cannot be silenced. We read there from verse 19, we see that that wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That all-encompassing dual term, if you will, or terms brought together. Certainly dealing with sins against God and sins against our neighbor. But I think including as well the root of sin as well as the fruit of sin. That which touches our nature as well as what touches our actions. And following those two words in which Paul describes the reasons for God's wrath, he uses this phrase, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, and we'll come to that more fully in a moment. But we read then following on from that, because that which may be known of God is manifest, and notice this, in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And then we have some remarkable words. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Invisible stuff that can be clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. I want to ask you to turn with me today back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 19, the psalm that we sang together today. I trust your thinking as we sing the psalms and sing the hymns. We sing with the Spirit and sing with understanding were described and told in Scripture. I've been encouraged even in recent months, there have frequently been prayers in the opening or pre-service prayer meetings and the regular weekly prayer meetings, that the Lord's presence would be with us in our singing. We've enjoyed much of that here. But Psalm 19, a key portion of Scripture, we'll look at this one in the Old Testament and then turn to another in the New. But read again the words that we've sung together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. What is the psalmist putting before us here? He's putting before us very plainly the doctrine that is being taught and unfolded perhaps in the most classic and highly significant theological portion of all the Scriptures, Romans chapter 1. But Paul's not making up something new. He's not suggesting a nice little thought that never occurred to anybody else, and just using that as the opening argument of his book. He's stating clear truth. 
there is a revelation that cannot be silenced. If you turn over to the New Testament Scriptures, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. This is reference to Paul's ministry in Lystra in the first missionary journey. If you were with us a lot of years ago now, I did a series one time on the, the preaching, the sermons in the book of Acts. And there are specifically, when you look at Paul's messages in particular, there are different contexts, very different audiences to whom the Gospel went in Acts. The message is consistently the same from Peter's sermon at Pentecost right through to the end of the book. But yet you can see at times the approach to get to that Gospel truth can vary audience by audience. Well, at Lystra, this is Paul's sermon to the pure heathen. There's no synagogue there. Else Paul and Barnabas would have gone to the synagogue, used that as their launching point in a new city, a new place. It's not such a place to go where the Old Testament's going to be read. I think it's significant if you look at Acts and you think of the extraordinary working of the Spirit of God with the apostles, the miracles, those supernatural things, the gifts that were given were not given, they were not practiced indiscriminately. What Paul and Barnabas lacked in Lystra as a platform to begin preaching Christ, the synagogue, the reading of the Old Testaments, God provided in the healing of a lame man. And they gather to hear Paul. And Paul preaches to them the Gospel. And then we begin begin reading in verse 12. They called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We are also men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. You think about that just again in the sovereignty of God. Something of that progression of sin in Romans 1, of God giving a people up to their desires and to their sins. That was the Gentiles. But verse 17, as we continue reading, Nevertheless, He left not Himself without witness, And that He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. These are just two samplings of many. You could turn to the book of Job and find in the reasoning of Job's friends, classic example at times where even well-intentioned people draw wrong conclusions from facts that they see. But here, we find Old and New Testament alike illustrated for us, stated plainly before us what Paul uses as this opening part of his argument in Romans 1. 
that which might be known of God is manifest unto them, for God hath showed it unto them. There is a revelation which cannot be silenced. Now, I want to introduce today just a couple of thoughts in the realm of systematic theology. We won't pursue them all the way through. But there are aspects of our collection of doctrine throughout the whole of Scripture. And as we look at God's revelation, there are two categories that we speak of when we go through the Scriptures. That which is often called natural theology, or to bring it a little closer for our point today, general revelation. There's general revelation, and then there's special revelation. I'll just give you the end of the matter here as we take our little venture to systematics and then come back. The distinguishing feature of special revelation is that it's redemptive in nature. I remember thinking that when I was just beginning my studies that special revelation was something that was miraculous. Well, I guess you could back up and even when we talk about Scripture, that is miraculous because it's divinely inspired. But that it included miracles and extraordinary things. No, general and special revelation have reference to revelation that is shining as it were all the time. And then revelation that God gives to man in his fallen condition that is redemptive in nature. Special revelation is the message of Jesus. Special revelation is God's condescending to reveal Himself to fallen men who have their minds darkened that they don't even see general revelation rightly anymore. But general revelation speaks of God being revealed in all things. Again, we can't pursue this at great length. But understand with me that Adam, as he was originally created in the image of God, yet unfallen, was placed in the garden. He was there to observe all of creation. Adam could not but see God in everything. He could see God even in himself because there was that in him that answered to the revelation. His mind wasn't clouded. He wasn't purposely walking in antagonism to His Creator. He couldn't see a star except understanding God put that there. He couldn't see a tree without understanding God created this to provide food for me. And he couldn't look at himself except understanding he was created in the image of God to worship and serve His Creator. When Adam fell, there was no change, if you will, in the facts of general revelation. What changed was Adam. Adam's heart and mind became darkened. And he now, as we see and will unfold further in a moment, looks at creation. He sees that revelation speaking to him, speaking within him. 
but his mind is clouded. Sin has entered. And death by sin. Fallen man now looks, if you will, at all the evidences, but he doesn't arrive at the right conclusions anymore. He should, but he won't. One of the pieces of our understanding of the fall of man and of depravity. Fallen man doesn't just need light. He needs sight to see the light. He needs a changed heart to interpret the evidence correctly. But the evidence is all around him. It's a revelation which cannot be silenced. And we'll come again to look more fully at the phrase who hold the truth in unrighteousness in a moment in our second heading today. But fallen man looks at this earth with a twisted view. Fallen man is at a point where he is running from God. Adam, who hides when he hears the voice of God coming in the cool of the day. If you look through the Scriptures, we just actually came through, I proctored the course in the seminary this last ten weeks of Old Testament introduction, otherwise known by first-year students as the baptism of fire, um, because it's, it's a tough class. I kind of wonder sometimes why you have one of the hardest classes first, but maybe that is because you need the baptism of fire to spur you on to deeper study in all your classes. But it is in Old Testament introduction that we don't only handle the usual parts of introduction, which is you know, the dates and the authorship of the different books and all of those things. But since it was in Old Testament studies that liberals, that unbelieving scholars introduced their unbelief to the church, we deal with their approach to Scripture. And one of the reasons it's in the field of Old Testament is because the liberal scholars, the first generation of modernists, if you will, looked at the Bible. They considered it a product of human invention. They looked at Israel and they thought, well, Israel is just like the other nations, but they kind of got ahead of everybody. They were doing good. They gave us the Bible and we like the Bible and it tells us how to be good people. So we'll keep it all in mind. But they... Amazingly, following the thoughts of the day, everything had to be, in the mid-1800s, pushed through a sieve of evolutionary thought. And they say, well, what we find in the Bible had to evolve. Man's religious thinking evolved. And so Israel clearly was like the other nations at the beginning. And they suggest that Israel came through this Well, this evolution. If any of the students are listening in to our live service today and exam week is coming, I doubt they are. But I happen to know that there's one of the questions in the middle portion of that exam where you have to list five stages. The liberals suggested 
and the evolution of Israel's religion. And they suggest this. Israel first uh, practiced animism. You know, they worship, well, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things like the other nations did. And then they got to thinking about that. That didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, how can a cricket be in charge of everything? And so they came into what's called polydemonism. Beings of the principalities and powers of the heavens. Lots of these. And then they thought, well, that's not the, really the best way to go. So they transitioned from that to polytheism. Not just the dark side, if you will. I have to pause. I had to laugh when I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this week and he mentioned the darkening mind of men. Lloyd-Jones was a little before, was it 1977? And he spoke about fallen men thinking about energy. Being in charge of all this stuff going on. And this energetic force. And he said, and they start using force with a capital F. And I thought, wow, that was before Star Wars. And here's Lloyd Jones preaching against them. I digressed. Israel, they came along to the idea of many gods, polytheism. And then they got a little bit better. They moved from polytheism to monolatry. That's a nice word, but if you know anything about idolatry, you can figure it out. Mon is one, okay. Monolatry, one God. But it's not quite monotheism yet because they think there's other gods, but we're just going to worship one. We're going to pick one and stick with it. And then finally, they got to monotheism. No, no, there's only one God. Isn't that pretty how, how how it all evolved? And then, of course, now that we know it's a product of man's evolutionary religious thinking, then since we're so much further advanced than them and we read stuff here that we don't like, well, we can change that too. Of course, that's produced the world we live in today. Is that progression what's really true? Let's look at it backwards. Let's look at Adam with a full knowledge of his God. And his descendants, hearing and knowing of that light shining. This revelation that can't be silenced. And they move, quite interestingly, just pretty much backwards through this. And you can see polydemonism and animism. Just watch the next commercial for the latest movie. Pretty much, that's where it gets. This Bible isn't a product of the evolving thoughts of Israel. It's a revelation of God. It reveals truth. But there's a revelation, even beyond, if you will, and prior to this inscripturated word, that can't be silenced. The deepest forests and jungles, swamps of this world, as missionaries traveled and sought them out, what do they find? 
non-worshipping people. Those have found people with worship. Just perverted worship. Fashioning the God that they know is there into what they think He ought to be or what they would want Him to be. Fallen man has an abundance of light. The psalmist said there is no speech, there's no language where the voice isn't heard. Our confession in the opening paragraph of the opening chapter speaks about the light of conscience and of nature. They're insufficient to lead man to a knowledge of salvation. But they are sufficient to lead a man to a knowledge of God, to a knowledge of sin, to a knowledge of his own condemnation and need. When we come to look at man in that fallen condition, there is a revelation which cannot be silenced. They seek to run from it. They seek to hide from it. But it is there. It speaks to them from outside. It speaks to them from within. Lloyd-Jones in his message on this portion of Romans 1 speaks about this revelation in the categories of creation and conscience. It's not just what we see, the heavens declaring the glory of God, but there's revelation inside. The conscience is there. Paul will phrase it this way later in in Romans 2. The Gentiles who don't have their Bibles like the Jews had. But what does he say? They show the work of the law written in their hearts. I remember during my days in seminary really being taken back with the truth that you find in Scripture. What is one of the results of the New Covenant? which is the Gospel. That God's law will be written on our hearts. It will be reflected then in what we seek after and what we follow. And of course, as believers, it's written on our hearts in that way now. And by the help of the Spirit and of the Word, we walk more and more into Christ's likeness. But we wait the day in which He returns and we're glorified And we don't suffer what we sang in Bonner's testimony that we all say amen to. My love ebbs and flows. But what do we do when we walk in that newness of life? We show the work of the law written in our hearts. Well, there's another place in Scripture where it talks about the work of the law written in our hearts. And it's in this section of the revelation of wrath. The Gentiles who have not the law, meaning the Bible that the Jews had, nonetheless show the work of the law written in their hearts. What is it written there for? What is it doing for them? It's not helping them walk in newness of life. It's not helping them walk in accordance with God's law. It's there's a condemning power. They know and understand that they're doing wrong. 
They know and understand that there's a righteous judge that created them and that they will answer too. It's a revelation that cannot be silenced. Now there's a sober footnote to that that we'll deal with in a later study. Because you'll see in verse 24, 26, and 28 of this chapter that there is a work that God does in the hearts of those that suppress His truth. And there comes a point in which men are given over to a reprobate mind. They genuinely don't understand anymore what's right and what's wrong. They call evil good. And they call good evil. And that's a judgment of God. But I say there's a revelation which cannot be silenced. Atheists don't act according to what they know and understand. It's like the atheist I mentioned from Sinclair Ferguson's comments at a Legionnaire conference several years ago. Before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a visiting, I don't know if he was a dignitary or a writer or somebody from the arts or whatever, but he was in Europe and he came to the, great, uh, to the United Kingdom. And he met a very notable English atheist. And he was surprised and told him such. He said, I thought everyone in the West was a Christian. And he said, no, they're not, and I'm evidence of that. I'm an atheist. But the man's response to the Russian went further. He said, but it's more than that. I hate God. You see, even when he seeks to deny the existence of God, he denies with his speech what he knows in his heart to be true. There is a revelation which cannot be silenced. But let me come secondly today to consider this. There is a rejection which cannot be excused. We read here, following on in verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of Him for the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made or that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Their heart had knowledge. There was light shining to them. They sought to suppress that. The foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And you see the remainder of the verse and the description of idolatry. That that the evolutionary theologians want us to think came first and they grew out of it. No, it came last. They fell into it. But I say it's a rejection which cannot be excused. Of course, Paul uses the very phrase here. They are without excuse. But I want to go back to verse 18. We see here in that opening phrase really of the revelation of wrath 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, remarkably, there is a wealth of discussion among commentators surrounding the word translated in our authorized version as hold. The word can have the meaning of hold in the sense of to possess something. If you look at the other side of it, the word can also have the meaning of, well, to aid our thoughts and memory here, of holding something down. So you, you, you hold something, or you hold it down, or to phrase it another way, the, the question is, to possess something, you have it. Or to suppress something. Well, this is one of those cases where I think all of the discussion gets a little meaningless. First, because ultimately the context shows us what it must mean. But it's not one of those either-or things. Because if the meaning is to suppress the truth, and there are several translations that actually use the word suppress, some commentators think that's too strong because it implies that they're successful in what they do. And they think we should opt for a word more like hinder. But I think suppress gives the point. William Hendrickson puts it this way, they attempt to suppress the truth. Well, you can't suppress something you don't possess. And that's the whole point Paul is making here. They had the truth. They have the truth shining to them every day but they reject it. They seek to hold it down to suppress the truth. It comes to what we read a little further down here. They exchange. They change the truth of God for a lie. They make an exchange there. They know what's true. They don't like it. They fight against it. They want their autonomy. They want to be loosed from God. But here I say, we see a rejection which cannot be excused. Sadly, many in the liberal branches of the church look at Scripture, they look at what they find in the world, and they want to think about, you know, the noble savage, as some phrased it. Some man out there that's doing pretty good. God's going to bring him to, to heaven too. Dr. Cairns was dealing with that, I recall. He said, if that were the case, then why do we have missions? Why does God command the church to go into the uttermost parts of the earth and preach the gospel? If, if the noble heathen are going to be, be better off in some ways without it, because if they just have a lesser light to live up to, and they, can, they can do that easier. Or perhaps we could offer the suggestion, well, if they don't hear about Jesus... They can't reject Jesus. 
You ever think about that in our modern evangelical world? When people in their theology, whether it's preachers consciously dealing with it this way or the church thinking about it in this way, that the thing that really condemns us is our rejection of Jesus? No, we're, we're condemned already. It's to a people already condemned, already under judgment, already under wrath, that the message of Jesus comes. It's not like you're in limbo until you hear. And then you say, oh, I don't like that. And now suddenly you're condemned. Oh, you're condemned already. And the point here that we see so powerfully unfolded in Romans If there is spiritual rejection of truth, there is a purposeful, willful rejection of light that is shining. Again, in our understanding, what we find in God's revelation of the gospel to us man in his blindness, man in his ignorance, is experiencing something. He is in a condition that he has chosen for himself. His blindness is willful. His ignorance is willful. He's suppressing truth. And it's a rejection of truth that leaves him without excuse. There won't be a sinner from the furthest, most remote point of this earth that can stand on the day of judgment and say, but I didn't know. No. He has rejected His Creator. He has sinned against His Creator. And it is a rejection which cannot be excused. Our blindness, our ignorance are culpable. God holds all men accountable. That's where this opening section from verse 18 of chapter 1 to the 20th verse of chapter 3 begins. And that's where it ends. Man, we'll just give Paul's conclusion and work our way back to it as well. But man, whether he be Jew or Gentile, whether it be religious or irreligious, civilized or uncivilized, he is a recipient of revelation. He's a recipient of the law of God. And he's accountable to it. And he's condemned by it. And here we see that fearful statement of man in that darkened condition. And that's why we come to understand that that we see Paul using that phrase we mentioned at the outset. He's not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This depravity that he will speak of and has begun unfolding is of such a nature that fallen man can't undo it. It takes a work of sovereign, supernatural power 
to bring men out of this chosen blindness, this willful depravity. And the good news, the gospel is that God has chosen in Christ Jesus to exercise saving power and bringing people out of their sin. And that's what we, that's what Paul so gloried in what the Romans had received. And he looked forward to fellowshipping with those of like precious faith. Those that had passed from darkness to light. To come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Because this depravity is of such a nature. It takes divine power to remedy it. There's a revelation that cannot be denied. And there is a rejection of that revelation that cannot be excused. I trust the Lord will add His blessing and give us sober hearts considering these quite sober words. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, We're thankful today that there is a message of gospel power to those of us who were dead and helpless in our sins. And so give us to know and experience more of the grace as it is in Jesus. May Your living Word bring forth ever-increasing fruit in the lives of Your blood-bought people. If there are any today that are yet outside of Christ, and perhaps even these words of the depth and nature of their need will be taken up of the Spirit to thrust them forward into the arms of Jesus. Lord, bless Your Word to us, we pray. In Jesus' worthy name, Amen.